This morning we're going to be looking at um, the last, I'm going to conclude the series that I have been in for the past five weeks. We've been exploring Psalms 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. However, in its great length, there is also great depth. And as I have said every single week, it is multifaceted and it is rich scripture and it is well worth the time that it will take you to explore it. And before we dig into it today, just in case maybe there's somebody here who has missed some or even all of the series, I'm going to back you up and catch you up very quickly because it's important for you to understand some background before we get into the last sermon today. Psalms 119 is comprised of 22 stanzas, each stanza being eight verses long and each verse has two lines. Each stanza sequentially begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there was structure to David's wordiness. He was not just rambling on or just filling space with words that had no significance. This was a very well thought out and a very well developed passage of scripture. And in fact, there is a tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church that King David was using this psalm to not only teach his son Solomon the Hebrew alphabet, but he was also using it to teach him the alphabet of spiritual life. And so when we began this series, I mentioned that Psalms 119 had uh, some major themes that run throughout its landscape. And the first one that we dug into was uh, David's emphasis on the Word of God. David teaches us that without the Word, you can't effectively walk, you cannot effectively weather the storms of this life, and you cannot effectively war against your adversary without the Word. The Word is absolutely essential, and if you have a deficiency of the Word of God in your life, you will eventually stumble, you will feel like you are surrounded, and you will ultimately surrender and give in. And in the second week, we dealt with David's instruction on prayer. So I hope that you've been praying the three prayers that he taught us to pray. First of all, David taught us to pray, teach me. If you ask the Lord to teach you and you study his word and spend time in prayer, I promise you, he will teach you. The second prayer he instructed us to pray uh, was bless me. I don't think I need to help anybody pray that prayer because we're all too good at praying that ourselves. But the psalmist did teach us to pray, teach me, then bless me. And the third prayer that he taught us to pray was protect me. Now, I don't know about you, but I need God to watch over me and to protect me from my enemy. But sometimes I need God to protect me from me. Amen? I don't want to squander my blessings, so I need God's knowledge and I need His protection on my life. Then we dealt with one of my favorites, one of the favorite themes in this chapter, and that is praise. We dealt with the when of our praise and said that even if it was at midnight, in the darkest hour spiritually of our lives, that we should be praising God. I asked you last week, when did Ruth go to Boaz to get his attention? The Bible said that she laid down at his feet at midnight and it startled him. Her advance at midnight got his attention. And I just wonder if some of us right in the middle of the darkest hour and the darkest time of our lives, if we would make an advance on, on the Lord, if that might just get His attention and we might just see God react when we give a midnight praise. 
ways. We need to get the ratio right. The psalmist taught us that he said, seven times a day I will bless the Lord. Seven times a day I will praise the Lord. But yet somehow in the church we've come up with this uh, system whereby once every seven days we assemble in the house of God to give God praise. But if we're just waiting until we get here to give God praise, we're missing out on a lot of the blessings that He has for us in our lives. And so the psalmist taught us to get the ratio right. It's seven times a day. We talked about the why of our praise. I want to tell you this morning, we praise because that is what you and I were created to do. We were created to worship and to praise our Creator. We praise as an overflow out of our life. But your mouth will never overflow with praise if your life does not overflow with praise. And finally, we dealt with the how we praise. We should be willing praisers. Did this worship team and band not do an awesome job this morning? Give them a big hand. Let them know how much you appreciate them. But I want to tell you, we should not be waiting for somebody to pump us up or work us up or prime us up to give praise to God. When we operate from the reference that He is worthy and from the reverence that The Word promises us that anytime we gather together, just like today, God is in this room right now. Isn't that good? And when we operate out of that reverence, we will become willing and attentive worshipers. And then last week, we dealt with one of the topics that probably everybody wishes we wouldn't deal with and David wouldn't include in this passage of Scripture, but it was affliction. David had suffered a lot, if you read about the life of David. But yet he teaches us that sometimes it is affliction that causes us to obey. So affliction is a part of discipline. And he even stated that affliction was good for us. I want to tell you, we need to learn that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Regardless of what you may be going through, all things work together for good. And David says that affliction is also an indication of God's faithfulness. He promised that we would not just have afflictions. This is the the bad part. But he said we would have many afflictions. But the good part to that bad part is, he also promised, he said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm serving a delivering, way-making God this morning. Aren't you? That's a promise that we can stand on. So I want us to wrap up this sermon series today because the last thing I want to bring to you is as I spent a lot of time reading and rereading Psalms 119, I noticed a particularly sorrowful section that gives us a glimpse into a situation that many of us can relate to or maybe even you currently find yourself in this morning. So if you'll stand with me all over the room, we're going to read eight verses of Scripture. Psalms 119, beginning with verse 81. David said, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? 
When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. There's that cry for help again that we find from David. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forgotten your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. This morning I want to wrap up this sermon series, Life is Better When We Live It by the Book, with part five. We're going to talk about waiting today. If you would, one more time, pray with me and for me. Father, we love you. You've already been awesome in this place today. God, now we ask, Lord, that you administer through your word. Remove every hindrance. Anoint every ear to hear and every heart to receive. And Father, don't let me speak my words today, but let me speak your words. God, don't let them come forth with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but let them come forth today in the demonstration and the power of your spirit. Speak to hearts and change lives as only you can today. In your mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. As you're seated, give the Lord the biggest hand clap of praise you can muster up this morning. If you'll help me today, I'll go quicker. How's that sound? <laughs> well, at least the staff is for it. Hallelujah. Uh, this stanza of verses 81 through 88 has been called the midnight of Psalm. These eight verses that we read. And the depth of David's midnight is revealed to us in verse 83. He uses a metaphor to show us how dark and how dismal this time in his life is. He says... I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. You see, that may not mean, that metaphor may not mean anything to most of us today because we don't know the tradition and the practice of that day. But the practice of that day was to hang empty wineskins in their tents. And David uses this to reveal how dismal his situation is. They would take the empty wineskin and they would hang it up in their tents. And since they had to have large wood fires for heat and they had no chimneys and they weren't really teepees, they had very small uh, holes in the top of the tent to let the smoke escape, the wineskins, when they were hanging in the tent, would become smoke-dried. They would become shriveled and they would be unfit for any future use. They became soot covered and blackened. David is simply saying, I have waited until all of the life has been sucked out of me. I have waited until all of the moisture, all of the hope, all of the joy, and all of the life has been literally burned out of me. I am covered up with the ashes of yesterday. I'm covered up with the soot of sorrow. David was simply saying, I'm dried up. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you were just dry and barren and you couldn't go anymore? You were so thirsty for a drink of refreshing water, but it just seemed like nothing changed, nothing was any different, and you were just dried up. Just dry and barren. In dire need of a refreshing and a refilling that only comes from the living water. You see, it's from this dark place that we see David struggles with the when question. The how long question. He's battling the feelings that he has inside that say, I have a promise. I have stood for the right. I have done what you ask of me. 
Now, when are you going to come through? When is your word going to go to work on my behalf? Where are you when I need you, God? I'm tired of waiting. And I think we've all asked those same questions at one point or another in our lives. David was right in the middle of the waiting game. Have you ever been there? Or maybe you're there right now this morning. Out of this midnight section of the psalm, David teaches us that waiting can cause us to grow weary. David's honest enough to express his sincere and heartfelt exhaustion and waiting for God to come through while the wicked all around him just seemed like they were prospering and they were going unpunished. He was shaking his fist and he was saying, When, God, how long is this going to last? How long am I going to have to wait? I want to ask you this morning, what do you do when your promises seem to go unfulfilled? What do you do when it seems like all you seem to do is just wait and still nothing changes? When it seems like you're waiting but there's still no justice? What do you do when you have tithed faithfully and yet it seems like the windows of heaven are shut tight or maybe you need the Lord to come and rebuke the devourer for your sake? What do you do? David was growing weary. I believe that sometimes some of us are exhausted. A lot of the questions that I hear sometimes in the church is, how long, pastor, before my spouse comes back? How long will I have to wait for my kids to come back to the Lord? How long until my kids respect me? How long am I going to have to wait until God brings me the healing that I've been promised in His Word? Sometimes we just simply get tired of waiting. And David understood. You see, there's something about waiting that causes you to grow whiny. Has anybody ever taken some small children on a long trip? And when you start out, I remember when Abby and Shelby were little and uh, I'm getting old and they're getting grown and I don't like it but it's life and I'll have to learn to live with it. But when they were little, like four and six years old or three and five, and we would take off on vacation and maybe sometimes we were going to Disney World or, or somewhere and we were driving and, and, you know, that's about an 11-hour trip or so. Maybe we were going somewhere that far and we would get in the car and maybe, maybe, maybe 15 minutes down the road. You know, they're all fired up and excited and we're going to see Mickey about 15 minutes down the road. Daddy, are we there yet? How much longer? Oh, baby, we got a long time to go. Just sit tight. Watch another movie. It's going to be a while. Maybe another 30 minutes later. How much longer, Daddy? Are we there yet? And all of a sudden, the next thing you know is somewhere between all of that excitement that they had in the beginning until about seven or eight hours down the road, that all of that are we there yet turns into, I don't want to be in this car anymore. I'm tired of being. Can we just go home? I don't care if we go. Can we turn around and go home? And I think, I've driven eight hours. There ain't no way I'd turn around and go home. But do you know what? That is exactly what we do to God. We get excited when we read the promise in the book. Or we get excited 
when we receive that word of prophecy maybe that's given to us and we're all excited about the word. God said he's going to do this, you know, just like vacation. We're going somewhere. I'm going somewhere. God's promised he's going to do this. And a little bit later I'm asking, where are you, God? You said you were going to do this. How much longer? And then a little bit later, how much longer, God? Are you going to do it yet? I know you promised you were going to do it. And then all of a sudden, all of that turns into, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of waiting. And sometimes, see, where I was the daddy and they were the child, I knew better than to turn the vehicle around and go back home because it would have been a 16-hour trip. We were only three hours away. But it would have taken me another eight hours to get home. But see, we're the child, and he's the father, and he lets us do what we choose to do. And I believe too many times, as children of God, we get really close to our breakthrough. We get really close to our destination, but we whip the vehicle around, and we go back home because we get tired of waiting. There's something about waiting that causes us to grow whining. David seemed to resist that temptation, though, better than we do. It's apparent by the number of times that he comes back to this period of lamentation in the Scripture that he's on the verge of becoming consumed or at least distracted by this waiting game. Too many of us go way beyond the weary stage to the whiny stage. We allow time to cause us to become a victim, and we stagnate in the wait but I also want to tell you this morning waiting and silence doesn't give us permission to go to war either and I'm not talking about war like the war room we've been studying on Wednesday nights that's pretty awesome when you go to war in your prayer closet that's where you should go to war but I'm talking about when you go to war in your flesh the waiting and the silence does not give us permission to go to war. And see, too many of us want to march on a word that maybe wasn't for us to begin with, or we want to march on a word that hasn't come to the fullness of time yet because God knows what He's doing. And if God said it will come to pass, it will come to pass, but it will come to pass not on our terms, but on God's terms. And too many of us want to march on on a word that hasn't come to the fullness of time yet. But I want to encourage you this morning to go back to the book of Exodus and learn from that account what happens when Pharaoh marched on a word that wasn't for him and didn't come for his time yet. He was drowned in the middle of the Red Sea because he was waging war in himself when that wasn't what the word of God to him was. You know, you can look around us and we can see what happens when we go to war based on a promise that has yet to be unfulfilled. See, I see people all the time who have promises about certain relationships that in God's timing would have turned out right. 
but they grow weary in waiting and they go to war on their own and they take matters into their own hands and because of that they end up getting ahead of God and instead of healing all they did was deepen the hurt they ended up in a marriage when the time wasn't right I want to tell you something young people do not be looking and maybe single older people do not be looking for somebody to marry out of desperation for a mate it is vitally important that you marry who God has for you and until you know they are for you you don't marry them can I hear an amen because you end up in a marriage that wasn't uh, God's time or it was before the time was right you end up out of a relationship because they wouldn't wait on God to turn it I've dealt with married couples that got weary with each other but if they would have prayed and held on because I want to tell you something right now. I told Angie not very long ago, I do not, I, I do not understand people. I, I'm sorry, I don't. If I'm going to stick around long enough to raise my children, 23 years later, I'll be doggone if I'm going looking for somebody else. Because if she can put up with me through that, I'm a lucky man. And if I can put up with her through that, she's a lucky woman. We built several houses and we've raised two kids that have turned out to be pretty good kids. And I'll never understand for the life of me why people get their kids raised and then bail out. I've dealt with people. Now sometimes it's unavoidable. There are biblical reasons for divorce. Hear me. There are biblical reasons for divorce. And God does not expect you to stay in an abusive relationship whether it's physical or verbal. Some of the preachers of today that will tell you unless they've hit you or unless they've, unless they've fornicated or had adultery, unless they've had adultery on you, committed adultery, then, then you've got to stay with it. No. If they are verbally abusive to you, they're abusing you, and God don't expect you to stay in it. There are biblical reasons for divorce, but I've also dealt with people that came to me. We want to try to work it out, but they, they don't want to wait. They don't want to wait on God. To work it out. So they end up out of a relationship when God would have turned it. We see folks with promises about their future. And if they would have waited, they would have found themselves blessed. But they got in a hurry and they became cursed. That's why patience is a virtue. You need to be patient and wait on the Lord for some things. Another thing that I probably should have said this on graduate Sunday, but that our graduates need to understand you're not going to have what mom and dad has on day one out of college. Mom and dad have worked 20 plus years for what mom and dad have. And if you try to have what they have day one out of college, you're going to be head over heels in debt. When you make financial decisions based on promises that have yet to come to pass and a lot of people end up in debt over their heads. They, and then a lot of people, I've seen people force themselves onto a stage and it destroyed them because they weren't ready and they weren't willing to wait. I've known people that were talented, that took their God-given talents and their God-given abilities and put it on a stage and used it for something else. And then they couldn't handle what came with it. Oh, pastor, what are you talking about? I've known some of those people. But then also, you see it in the news every day. Month after month, you read where some celebrity has died. And they've died a multi-millionaire. 
But they died depressed. They died lonely. They died addicted because they could not handle the place that they were put in. It's important to wait on the Lord. See, every time it seems like David grew so tired of waiting that he would take matters into his own hands, he would circle back to this, I will trust you. I will obey your instructions. I will honor your decrees type of posture. He just laid down his weapons and he waited. I think we need to learn from David because it seems to me that most of us, after a prolonged season of waiting, we begin to take up weapons of sarcasm, weapons of bitterness, sharp words, anger, and we strike out at those who we think are against us and those who we think should be for us, but they are not. I want to tell you something right now that I told the first crowd this morning. Don't ever try to analyze the tone of a text message or the origin or purpose of a Facebook post. It will destroy you. It will do like the wineskin. It will suck the life right out of you. Because you cannot discern the true tone of a text. Sometimes people can say things that seem so short, but yet they never thought a thing about it. You just caught them when they were busy. And then I'm going to tell you something else. If you've not learned this, you need to learn something your pastors learn. Because... Multiple times I have looked on Facebook and I've been scrolling and there's been something posted by somebody within this 330 some member body that said something that it sounded like it was either about something I said or maybe in retaliation to something I said. And I used to really struggle with that. I would struggle so bad to, I mean, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'll be transparent. I didn't tell the first crowd this morning, but I'll tell you. I was so bad I'd look at it and I'd say, Angie. Have you seen so-and-so's post? Go look at it. And I sat there with my phone waiting on her. She looks at it. You think that's about me? Are they talking about me? Why would they say that about me? It will eat you alive. So you know what I've started doing? I go down through there, and I don't care. Guess what? I'll just serve notice on the devil this morning. If it is about me. I go down through there and I don't care how similar it looks or how much it triggers something I might have said or done or posted on Facebook. God gave me the gift to keep on scrolling. Just keep on scrolling. Some of you need to forget social media if you can't just keep on scrolling. You need to let it just roll. My mama used to say, let it roll like water off of a duck's back and just trust God, hold on to God, and God will fight your battles. But when you take up your own weapons, God cannot fight for you. So you need to lay down those weapons. I came to tell somebody today, you need to lay down those weapons. That sarcastic, smart aleck Facebook post that says, you know who you are. I can't stand it when I see that. I want to comment on there and say, no, I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> you need to lay those down. I said you need to lay those weapons down. 
You need to quit pulling the strings. You need to quit working the angles. You need to quit maneuvering and trying to do it yourself and go back to waiting on the Lord. David shows us that waiting does not see you. We feel like if we don't do something right then, we're weak, right? We Oh, that's about, oh, that's about me. Let me just do something right back right here. See if they check my status. Uh-huh. Yeah, some of you are laughing, but it's the truth. It couldn't be any closer to the truth. And David teaches us that waiting does not cause us to grow weak. Waiting, because we're waiting, does not mean that we are weak. Although David grew weary, David did not grow weak. While David was at the breaking point, it seems that he comes back to this strength of God's word and he finds endurance and stamina to continue waiting. Because in fact, immediately following the midnight of this psalm, as it's known, David pens one of the greatest testimonies about God ever penned. Psalms 119 verses 89 and 90. He said, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. David, after expressing his disgust with waiting, he turns and says, God, your word is eternal. Your word is firm. Your word is solid. Your word is true. You see, David has come to a place of realization that if God said it, even if time passes with no glimpse of fulfillment, I will still believe what God said. You cannot make me believe otherwise because God is not a man that he should lie to me or to you. And even that means even when I can't see it, he's working. Even when I can't feel it, he's working because the God we serve never Never stops working. Somebody give the Lord some praise. Hallelujah. So out of a prolonged season of waiting, he brags on the prolonged length of God's faithfulness. He says, your faithfulness continues not only to me, but to all generations. That means the faithfulness of God is to me, but it's also to my children. And the faithfulness of God is not just to my children, it's also to my children's children. And long after I'm gone, they can still see the faithfulness of God at work. And I said this in the early service, so I'm going to say it in this service as well. Not only is His faithfulness a promise to all generations, in case you didn't know or realize you are attending a full gospel Pentecostal church. This movement, the church of God, is a full gospel Pentecostal church. And so that's why, if you wonder why we get loud in our worship sometimes, that's part of the why, because we're just loud in our worship. Sometimes I wish we'd be louder. 
but we're, we just believe in just letting the Lord have his way. We believe in shouting hallelujah. We believe in shouting glory to God. We believe in lifting our hands in worship. And you may hear me clap. You may see somebody run. But let me tell you what else we believe in. We also believe in the speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance and that that is the initial evidence of the baptism in the Holy Ghost. And the Bible also promised us, and this is what's so good about it. See, I wasn't raised like that. I didn't know. That that was not in just, I didn't cut my teeth on Pentecostal pews. I was raised in church. But when I experienced it for myself, I can testify to you that it is real. It's not made up. It's not phony. It's not insignificant. And this book promises, guess what? It's not just to me. Oh, hallelujah. It's to my children. And it's to my children's children. Just like it happened on the day of Pentecost. If we'll seek the face of God, that promise of fulfillment is to every single generation. Every single generation. And so we believe in that. We practice that. God's faithfulness is to every generation. See, sometimes we got to learn that, yes, I'm tired of waiting. But I realize, God, that you aren't just God enough to be faithful to me, but to everyone in every generation to come. And so David rallies himself, and he becomes stronger, and he becomes more resolute in his trust in God. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chimes in in Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm almost done. Verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Watch this. You might... But he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. As a matter of fact, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. He said, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But here it is. But they who do what? They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When you wait upon the Lord, you might get tired. You might get weary. But we serve a God that neither slumbers nor sleeps he's never tired he's never weary and when you wait on him he will renew your strength as they come to the music this morning you see sometimes though we refuse to wait and when we do we grow weaker we refuse to wait and we grow weaker but when we wait we gain strength. David shows us that although it's acceptable, I believe it's acceptable sometimes to question God's timing. God understands that we're going to do that. But we never have to question His faithfulness. We never have to question God's faithfulness. I want to tell you this morning, delay does not mean denial. 
Did you hear me? Delay does not mean denial. Waiting does not mean no. Waiting means not right now. Waiting means I will hold on until you give me different instructions. Waiting means I will become even more careful to check with you, God, before I do anything. And you know, the enemy would like to make you believe sometimes that waiting means that you have to settle. Just settle for less than what God has for you. But waiting doesn't mean that you have to settle. What waiting means is that you have enough trust and confidence in God that He will keep His promise. See, if God said it, I don't care if I have to wait 50 years on it. Just keep waiting. Don't give up. Because He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful.